Howdy and welcome to 127 on the mic. This sermon was recorded on February 26th and is the second and final week of our sex and dating series. Uh, the sermon focuses more on the dating aspect and is from our college pastor, John Davison. If you have any questions, you can visit our website, um, fbcbryan.org slash college. We hope you enjoy. Amen. Thanks, guys. Grab your Bible, uh, Matthew chapter 19, 1 Corinthians 6, uh, maybe 1 Corinthians 13 if you want to get ahead of the game. Set you up a little bit on, on what we've been doing. Uh, you laughed at it last week. It is sad sometimes, but looking at this idea of sex and dating and really under the, the umbrella that what God says about marriage, it's kind of the only place that we can land because in scripture, here's, here's the relationships. It's believer, unbeliever, it's believer, believer, and then it's just married. They didn't have a dating one. They didn't have a pre, they, there's some, some push against premarital sex in there, but it, it all functioned underneath the assumption that marriage is the ideal place where all of those things happened. And so last week we talked about this, the idea of sex and, and how it affects you now and what you need to be looking forward to towards marriage. And I want to remind us of something in 1 Corinthians, and then we'll, we'll get into this idea of dating. So in chapter six, this is what Paul says to them, to, to a pretty corrupt church, He says, verse 18, flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. I love this. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. So glorify God with your body. And that price, we understand, is Jesus' death on the cross, the battle that he makes for you to stand in your place for your sin. And and if you want some encouragement from him, how he sets this up earlier in chapter 6 is this. And a lot of us need to to rest in this. Some of you used to be like this. But you are washed. You are sanctified. You are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is, I want to hit you with the good news on that, because last, last week, if you were here, it was a little bit difficult, and for you to begin to process what the gospel actually does with, with your past, what it does with your present, what it's doing with your future, and underneath this, this, this thing, I don't even want to say this idea, underneath this sin of sexual morality, which if, if we were to take a poll, probably 100% of you have struggled with in some way, shape, or form, and what the enemy wants to do is to, is to push down in that wound and allow you to refill that shame and that guilt and what you think is disappointment uh, to the Father and that he looks down upon you with disgust because of some of the things that you have um, walked in and walked through and experienced in life. And and this verse is so important for us as we begin to move forward. Some of you used to look like this, but you're washed. You're sanctified. You're justified. You, You are made clean. You are put into the right place because of what Jesus has done, and because of his blood poured out on the cross, you are put into a right relationship with the Father. And so this is where we want to where we want to sit. Because here's here's the thing, and I've told this with our Bible study leaders, I believe this with my whole heart, that we can't get the marriage thing wrong. Okay? Your generation, like my generation, like generations past, this can't be something that you mess up. Now, we can look at all the statistics and all of that stuff, and hurrah, it's like the divorce rates. Yeah, I can use that as a threatening thing to you. We, we can just recognize that the world isn't getting this right. The church isn't always getting this right. But it's not something that we can, we can be like, ah, that's okay. Like, I'm just going to be like the majority. I'm not going to strive for this. No, we're going we're gonna to fight and we're going to contend for this. 
And so if you are going to, some of the things that we're going to put before you today, um, we talk about getting from this, this lonely little sad place, I would probably say the majority of you want to go from there to where? To there. Whoever just whooped, raise your hand, because a girl needs to know who that was. Um, <laughs> the problem with that, it used to be, uh, hey, Jedediah, uh, how many donkeys is your daughter worth? Because uh, <laughs> it's time for Joseph to procreate. That's what it was, right? But now, we, in the last 70 years in America, we've included this little middle thing. We've included this. They're like, oh, I'm going to prove that maybe they've gone too far. Y'all are living dangerously, all right? <laughs> There's enough room there for the Holy Spirit, maybe not. Um, here's the deal. In order for us to get to the thing that we need to contend for, because marriage is an unbelievable display of the gospel, this thing that we do in our culture now is called dating. we got to figure this thing out. Here's a couple, I was looking at a couple little cute sayings about dating. If God is going to write your love story, he's going to need your pen first. Some of you are like, whoa. <laughs> because a lot of us are trying to write our own love story. These are cheesy. I'm sorry. This, one, this one's probably a little bit better. Dating with no intent to marry is like going to the grocery store with no money. You either leave unhappy or you take something that's not yours. This is where we're going. Hold on. Dating with no intent to marry is like going to the grocery store with no money. You either, you either leave unhappy or you take something that's not yours. And, and this, is, this is kind of where we're, we're hanging out. It's where we're trying to figure this thing out. Because if we want to talk about a Jesus-centered approach to dating, then we have to let God write that. The issue, as we've already stated, is there's not any real clear biblical directive as far as dating goes. We don't see like a zoom-in part of the garden, and Adam is sitting there on his cell phone on Tinder, and he was like, hmm, who do we got? One person. Swipe right. I mean, that's the only thing I can do. <laughs> Joseph didn't like see Mary out in the marketplace and then go stalk her Instagram and see what she was all about. So you're like, I would never do I don't have Instagram. You would if you had Instagram, I promise. Um, this is, this is where we're at. This is the culture that we're, that we're in, and this is the challenge, is that, that the Bible doesn't give us this real big go-to. And so, so this is what I'm going to do. For those of you that have been hanging out for a while, this is outside of my norm, and that's okay, because I, I believe that we need to hear this. Um, in order for us to, to, we have to take these principles from the Bible that are clearly presented, and then we have to apply them into spaces that aren't directly addressed in Scripture. Paul's really good at this, where he puts like this blanket statement. He says, hey, apply this to a lot of areas of your life. Since dating isn't directly mentioned in Scripture, we have to just take the wisdom from Scripture, apply it to our life, and this is a very important skill for us to develop. And I think dating is just a great place for us to understand this, because here is the understatement of the year. Dating is complicated. Amen? It is. Dating is just a challenge. I, I, don't want to, I don't want to put a date. I was going to say I don't want to date myself, but in this context, this is weird. I don't want to put a date on myself, but, but I was in college from the year 1998. I know, for, for a long time after that. And 
And I understood, still old, and I understand like the difficulty within day, I understand how complicated it was. Talk to my wife about how bad I was at it, um, how oblivious I was to the whole dating scene. But I got to look around at friends who are navigating this stuff real stupidly. And just like, you guys are morons and I'm probably a moron with you. And I recognize how difficult this is. And so whether you are 18 or 19 or 20 or 21 or 30 or 40 or 50 or 60, um, dating can be difficult and it can be complicated. And I see a lot of people running around who get hurt, who do long-term damage to themselves and to others because they don't get this right. And so I, I want to keep you from that. I made this statement last week, if you didn't hear it, I want, I want our ministry to be a place where people date well and where people break up well. You're like, that's mean. It's going to happen. And I'm going to prove to you that it's probably going to happen. It may happen tonight. I hope it doesn't. I hope I don't see it. Um, but, it, it but if the Lord wills, okay? <laughs> but what I really want is I want you to look back at this season of your life, at this chapter of your life, and I want you to look back with zero regrets. And be like, I did everything that I could. I put the right things in place so that I could get this right because very few people can do that. And so in, in order for us to, to have a place to stand, let's look at Matthew chapter 19. I'm going to read a couple verses to you. Let's get Jesus' idea of what marriage is, and then let's try to apply some wisdom to that in the dating scene. So Matthew chapter 19, Jesus has finished saying some things. The Pharisees come up to him and like, hey, um, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife on any grounds? And Jesus goes ahead and drops kind of his idea of marriage. Verse 4, haven't you read I love this because they're like the experts of the law, of course, they have it memorized. But haven't you read, he replied, that he who created them in the beginning made them male and female? And he also said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. I talked about the importance of that last week, verse 6. So they are no longer two, but they are one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. You go back to Genesis 2, into the creation story, and it's like, why is Jesus quoting this? He's because God made everything, and all of it was good. And he looked at man, and he said, well, there's one thing that's not good. It's for you, clown, to be running around naked by yourself in the woods. We need to give you a helper and this, this was for companionship, it was for friendship, it was eventually for, for procreation, for God's glory, for all of those things. But Jesus connects, have you not read, Pharisees, the creation story of what God was doing and what he intended for marriage. And so, yes, like divorce was allowed because of the sinful nature of the people. But this was not God's plan from the beginning, he goes on to say. And so his plan was for this. This is what Jesus says, marriage is these couple things. Marriage first is friendship. God's primary purpose in creating marriage, according to Jesus, was for the friendship of man. God said, it's not good for you to be alone. And so he created this halup. It's, it's the word there that we see in Hebrew, and it literally means a deep friend for him. There's imagery there while, while he was created from his flesh, from deep in a spot. He created a deep friend. So first, marriage is friendship. Second, marriage is permanent. In marriage, you lock the door and divorce should be taken off the table as an option. It was really the one thing that stuck to me to, from my premarital counseling. My mentor came to me and goes, hey, you, here's, here's the thing. Divorce is a cuss word in your house. You do not say it. It is the most vile of words that you can threaten somebody with. And so you take that thing off of the table. Jesus goes on and compares divorce to cutting off a limb. The only reason that you would ever do that is what? If the limb is worthless to you if the limb is dead. And so his out is if a spouse has killed your marriage. And so we, as a pastoral staff, me, when somebody comes to us and says, hey, I'm thinking about divorce, like we go into battle mode. 
Like, it's, it's a triage unit at that point. Did somebody kill something in here? No, I'm just not happy. All right, then this, we're not allowing it. We're going to fight for this. Because Jesus says that marriage is permanent. It's friendship, and it is permanent. And lastly, Jesus says that happy marriages require God's help. Happy marriages require God's help. Jesus, of course, wants you to have a happy marriage. He taught that marriage clearly, while beautiful and rewarding and wonderful, it's all of those things, it is so hard that you can only do it well with God's help. That's it. The only way that this happens is with God's help. Marriage is a gift that has been given to you from heaven to be a reflection of the gospel to a lost world who sees two sinners together, somehow making it work, walking in forgiveness, walking in grace, walking in love, all of those things being true. And they look at that and they go, man, like, this is God's fault. How are you able to do this? We need God's help. It is friendship. It is permanent. And it's only accomplished with God's help. And so if those three things are true... And I believe that they are because Jesus taught them. Then I want to give you six, like, common sense resolutions that apply to that, that biblically wise people will walk in when they're thinking about dating. Okay, so I, I, I want to say that, that biblically wise people will do this. Um, I will never expect a lost person, and by a lost person, I mean somebody with out a relationship with Jesus, I will never expect a lost person to act saved. I will never expect a lost person to walk in some of these things. But if you are like, I want to honor God with my marriage one day, and so in order to get there, I'm going to honor him with how I date. And so I want to challenge you, these resolutions, like make them, make them your own. Make them your own now. Begin to walk in them. Find some people that will help you walk in them and make them your own until you get married. And then you can keep walking in them. And you can model them before hopefully the Lord gives you kids one day and grandkids. And these things can continue to, to echo. But before we jump into that, I want to give you a warning. These warnings are, or these resolutions are very countercultural. Which means that if you begin to do these, people on your college campus are going to look at you kind of strangely. Your parents may even go like, what are you doing? The, the world is going to look at this and go, you're not normal in walking this way. And, and that's okay, because newsflash, our culture's not very good at this anyway. They're, they're not real awesome at the whole dating and marriage thing right now. I was, in, in trying to gather some resources for this, a friend of mine, as I was talking to us about, he said, hey, I read this, or, this article, you need to check it out, and I've never even heard of this this millennial website, uh, newsfeed called medium.com. Yeah. He sent me this article that said this, dating today is the worst. Each time I ask friends ranging from early 20s to their 40s how the temperature in the dating pool is, I'm met with borderline hostility. For all of the talk of ease that dating apps allow, the impression that I'm left with is that everyone is swimming in a pool that they all took a dump in. But instead of feeling gross and getting out, everyone decides that they have no choice but to keep swimming in the sewage because it's the only pool where they can meet other people. This is what, sad truth, and this is not a believer writing this. This is culture writing this and going, this is the dating scene. It's a pool. Somebody, everybody poops in it, but we can't get out because this is the only place that we meet people. It's a little crude, but, but this is the culture that we live in. I, I know like some of the popular shows that you watch, I went after them last week. Like the bachelor and the bachelorette is that. It's a poop-filled pool. You should tweet that. 
if, tw if Twitter's still cool. I don't know. That, that's what that is. And, and hear me, I, I believe that our culture longs for like good, fulfilling, lifelong marriages. I don't think anybody walks into that and like, I'm gonna date, I'm gonna get married, I'm gonna divorce you in about, I don't know, 16 months for fun. That'll be cool. I like to work really hard and then split all I have with you. That would be great. And then I'm gonna do it a couple more times. This is not really the goal. I think culture longs for these lifelong, fulfilling marriages, but, but culture doesn't know how to get there. And so here's, here's the lesson. If you, want something that nobody has, if you want something nobody else has, you have to be willing to do what nobody else does. If you want something that nobody else has, you have to be willing to do what nobody else does, and we can apply that to all kinds of things. But this is real applicable to the dating scene. And this is what these resolutions are for us. They're uncommon, they're countercultural, but I believe that they will end in the kind of marriage that you long for, and I think the kind of marriage that Jesus wants for you. So here's the first one. I will prioritize character over chemistry. I will prioritize character over chemistry. If marriage is about friendship, lifelong companionship, then character is so much more important than our chemistry. Culture, our culture says that physical attraction is like everything. According to the Bible, chemistry is not nothing. I mean, there's a book that a lot of you won't even turn over to. Wow, I did it in one turn. Song of Songs. That was weird. Um, some of you get embarrassed by even reading that. And so it, it's not that chemistry isn't nothing in Scripture. God created it, but it's not everything. Do you know that studies show that the effects of attraction like that I have the butterflies. The effects of attraction wear off in 18 months, which is why some of you have never had a relationship longer than 18 months. Let me just went, oh. And, and that's primarily what culture is saying that your relationship depends on. And when it fades, you have nothing left. And so you just go next. Next, and you, you just keep going. Apostle Peter says there's two kinds of beauty. He's, he's speaking to women in 1 Peter 3, but this could apply to men also. He says, your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as braided hair or the wearing of gold jewelry and fine clothes. Instead, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. And... Guys in this room, this should be great worth in your sight. And ladies in this room, this should be great worth in your sight. You should be looking for somebody who has the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. It's, it's unfading. And that doesn't mean that they're like introvert. This means that they humbly pursue the things of God with all that they are. Physical beauty, it, it fades in two ways. First, it, beauty itself fades, like thing, be, things begin to sag and wrinkle and you just, you just get older. That's just what happens. The second way it fades is it, its power on you begins to fade. Like even if, even if he works out every day and even if she has all of the right procedures done and her hair done and the makeup done right and everything, eventually its effects on you also begin to fade. And so if you're wise, 
and you know this stuff in the dating process, then you will prioritize presence of character over chemistry because that's the kind of beauty that lasts. You're going to be dating to know their character. You guys know our boy up north, Matt Chandler, in his book, when he got, he was writing about when he got brain cancer and he he wrote this, It, it applies really sweet here. When I, got, when I got cancer, everything that was sexy about me vanished. My strength, my vibrancy, my sense of humor, even my hair. All of that was gone for two years. I became a shriveled up version of what I was before cancer. But Lauren, that's his wife, had entered into a covenant with me and she loved the character that God had formed in my heart. All that mattered in that chapter of our marriage was her character and mine. Character sustained the marriage, fueling and reigniting the rest. Just a sweet way to look at that. But some of you are like, he, he's so cute. <laughs> have you seen her eyes? Like, have you, have you seen how her hair looks? Have you seen him without a shirt on? Can, can I tell you this? That his abs will not matter at all when you have a sick and dying kid on the way to the hospital and he needs to cry his guts out to God. They won't matter. His character who says, hey, this is in God's hands. That's what's going to matter. Okay, so we can, we can push those things aside. Are you going after the kind of guy who you know is going to lift you up and your future up and your marriage up and your future kids up and all of those things up before God in prayer? Is he like a rock that you can lean on? Do you long for somebody that, guys, like when you lose your job and you come home feeling defeated, And she comes to you and stands beside you and says, I'm not going anywhere because of what God is doing in and through you like I trust you. This is what you're going after. Because marriage is companionship and because it is permanent, then character matters most of all. If if you're going to tie yourself to somebody physically, emotionally, and spiritually for the rest of your life, this has to be the thing that rises to the top. It does. All of the rest of that stuff is going to fade. You, like, I believe this is true. You, you want to marry somebody whom you are in love with and who is in love with you, right? You're like, yeah, that, that kind of makes the most sense. I want to marry somebody that I love. I want them to look at me and be like, hey, I love you. Well, what is love actually? Like it's a movie. Because um, it's not, we just said this, it's not just the, the butterflies that you feel in your stomach. You've been to a wedding before, I think. 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient. Patience means that you're okay with them not being perfect. Because hear me, ladies, at some point in your life, the intoxicating effect that you have on guys is going to go away. It will. That's not an insult to you. It's just how God has created it. Um, And are you okay with them being like, hey, I'm not really attracted to you anymore, I'm out? Or would you desire somebody who says, love is patient. I'm okay with you not being perfect. In fact, that, that intoxicating you effect that you've had on me has faded, and I'm honest with you, but it doesn't disappoint me because I'm going after your character. They are patient. Love is kind. Considerate, it thinks of others. It, it keeps no record of wrongs. This is a big one in marriage. Are you the kind of person that every time somebody does something wrong to you, you like put it in a journal? 
And then you pull up that list. It's like, hey, here's all the ways that you've disappointed me. Love does not envy it. That means that it's, it's the kind of person who can be happy even when you don't feel happy. You can be happy with the success of other people. It, it does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. A person of true love doesn't think that life is all about them. They're, they don't think that they're entitled to everything. Love does not dishonor. It means that love doesn't use someone else like a commodity. It's what we talked about last week for the fulfillment of their needs, but they look for the, to honor the needs of the other person. They respect and honor them. Love never gives up. Love doesn't give up when you when you're let down. It, love doesn't leave. It never stops believing in you and it's working for the success of the relationship. Like, isn't this the type of person that you want to marry one day? That, that walks in this, not just like, he's so attractive, but you allow the character to define the attractiveness to you. And you say, well, well how can I tell what their character is like? The English word for character comes from the word shirax, which refers to an engraving tool that they use to engrave on metal. And this tool, it makes this, this imprint that no matter what you dip it in, if you're coating the metal in something or whatever it is, that, that mark is still there. So basically it means that it, it puts a mark on it and the environment doesn't affect it. You wanna know somebody's character? How are they in their other relationships. Like, in the dating stage, girls, you have to know this. When a guy first starts dating you, and this may be the other side too, I don't know this because I'm not a girl, I just know what the guy said. We'll make it both ways. But when a guy starts dating a girl, he becomes a used car salesman, which means the carpet gets clean, they spray some stuff in there to make it smell better, to hide all of the other stuff. And if there's a weird noise under the hood and you begin to notice it, they turn up the radio. That's nothing. <laughs> Don't worry about that. Girls probably do some of the same things to kind of get your attention in the midst of that. But that's how we are at the beginning of dating. But if we want to look at somebody's character, how about this? How, do, how does the person treat their parents? How she treats her dad is probably going to come to you one day. How he treats his mom, just be ready for that. That's almost always universally true. How do they treat their friends? And, and I can go a thousand ways with this, but just a really quick one is, how do they talk about their friends when their friends aren't around? Because they're probably doing that to you too. Character in that regard is not something that's just like a switch that flips on and off. How do they treat their siblings? Some of you are like, oh, I've failed. Single for the rest of my life. <laughs> One of the guys that I worked with before, a senior pastor, every time that we were interviewing somebody to come on our staff, he would take them to lunch first, and he would take them to this place where we were from that was known for the service of being absolutely terrible. And he just wanted to see how a, he, that person, male or female, treated the waiter and the waitress just in those situations. Because he knew when the honeymoon stage wore off of being invited to be on staff at a new church, he, that person was going to go back to how they treated the waiter and the waitress in those situations. Do they keep their word? <laughs> when, I, when I think about this, um, this is more than just like, do they tell the truth? Do they keep their word to others? Is, is their word their bond? Have they kept a job for a while? I commit to work here until I kind of get tired of it, then I'm out. 
or until something better comes along. Now, I know that's probably an over-exaggeration for job stuff because you need to keep working towards that. But, but some people just like bounce around in those things. Here, here's one that may feel like a punch in the gut. Can they keep their hands off of you? Because if, if they don't have the control to keep their hands off of you now, do you think that they're going to have the control to keep their hands off of someone else when they're married? Again, that's not something that we control, that we switch on and off, just like I can do that when we get married. If they're all over you now, and they're addicted to the intoxicating effect of like physical activity, when the 18-month, now hear me, that attractive scale when you get married, I think that all shifts, but when they just get like bored with you, What's going to stop them from just jumping on somebody else? Can they keep their hands off of you? So if, if marriage is a lifelong union of companionship and character matters most of all, then, then chemistry, it's, it's not nothing because God made it, but it's, it's not everything. And I've, I've been asked this question before. We're thinking about this earlier, like practically speaking, John, what, what do I do if I'm attracted to someone's character, but... Not really to them. Do, do I just keep dating them for Jesus? <laughs> You're like, I, I understand the question, but I would never tell somebody to date someone that they're not attracted to for that person's sake. Because hear me, guys, every woman wants to be beautiful to her spouse, and no one wants to hear from you, hey, I'm not really attracted to your looks, but man, your, your quiet time game is fire. Love that. Like, like we open our Bible and it says that you are beautifully, wonderfully made. And, and so ladies want to hear that. And, and guys, like we want to be attractive to others. And so it's, it's not just that like, hey, I'm going to go after their character, even if I think that they are unattractive in every way physically. But I, that's not what scripture is saying here. But... I will, I will sometimes say to them, it's like, hey, you're not attracted to them now, but I believe that attraction grows over time. Now, I'm not telling you to date them right now, but if you are attracted to their character, then we're going to see another one of these countercultural things about community. Like, if you're attracted to their character, then, then I would kind of stay in the same proximity to them. Draw clear lines, but you may become attracted to them. I'm not, I'm not saying that chemistry is nothing, but don't give it the weight that our culture gives it. So if number one is true, number two is this. I will date for clarity, not intimacy. I will date for clarity, not intimacy. And so this is what you ask yourself. What am I after in dating? What is the purpose of dating? Dating is not an appetizer for marriage. Okay? This is not how this is designed. It's not commitment light. It's not sexual pleasure light. It's not companionship light until you get the meal. Because a lot of times if, if somebody puts food in front of you, you eat it really fast and you're not satisfied and you keep eating and you keep ordering and you keep pushing the limits until all of a sudden you're at the meal with no commitment. Dating is a time to evaluate the person that you desire to join yourself to for life. And so if the purpose of dating is to choose someone to marry, and that means that character matters the most of all, then physical intimacy is something that for the most part you should keep to a minimum. Why? Because physical intimacy is a drug. When, when you're sick, 
I'm having surgery in like three weeks, and they're, they're going to give me a drug after my surgery. And that drug will make John say weird things. That drug will make John feel differently than how he should be feeling because there will be a large incision on my foot and some stitches in there and some other things happening. And so there should be pain, but they're going to give me a painkiller that makes my brain like flip into a weird world where everything's really funny and my foot doesn't hurt anymore. This is what physical intimacy does to you. It begins to hide things that are wrong. And you know that the character's jacked up, but the physical side of it is so good that it's blurred all of this. And then when you try to break up because you finally get to the point you can't handle the character anymore, it is unbelievably painful because last week we learned like you've attached yourself to this person. This is the challenge with with the physical side of it and this drug. And when the physical excitement of that begins to fade, all that you are left with is a sick relationship. And so let me be clear. The Bible tells us that awakening sexual stimulation outside of marriage is a sin. 1 Corinthians 6. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5 on the sermon, during the Sermon on the Mount, to think lustfully about someone that you're not married to is committing fornication in your heart. Obviously, doing the things that get your motor running, even if you don't plan on going all the way, does that. Paul says, flee from that sexual immorality. It's not like, how close can you get to the edge of the pool and just like see how warm the water is? No, he says, run from that stuff. Get away from that. And so we avoid it because of what it is. Like, it's a drug. And knowing what we know about marriage, knowing what I know about marriage, seeing marriage play out, even if I wasn't a Christian, and even if I wasn't a pastor standing in front of you, if somebody came to me who was an unbeliever, and and they were like looking for dating advice, I would still give them this advice. I would still go, hey, it's probably wise for you to, to avoid like physical intimacy for a while, because sexual stimulation like sabotages the spouse search. It does, it just sabotages it. And so, so here's, the, here's the practical for me. These aren't on a slide, so maybe you want to write these down. This is a combination of what my student pastor told me and what I'm going to tell my boys one day when they start dating at 25. Um, <laughs> here's, here's the laws that, that I would encourage you to live by that were shared with me a while back, modified a little bit. Nothing in the dark. Nothing in the dark. I mean, I can go so many biblical ways for that, but um, light has no place. (laughs) Darkness has no place in the light. Genesis 2.25, we quoted it last week. Adam and Eve were naked and they felt no shame. There's a reason you do these things in the dark outside of marriage. Because you don't, in your mind's eye, don't want to see the sin that you're walking in. So nothing in the dark. Nothing below the chin. Nothing in the dark, nothing below the chin. Never lie down together. Matt Chandler says this in his book also, nothing good and godly ever happens between dating couples when they lie on a couch together late at night and watch a movie. It has never in the history of humankind led to discussions about cinematography or the symbolic resonance of the director's body of work. I walked in on my college roommate who was an intern with us, laying down with his girlfriend one day, and he jumped up and said they were praying. It's like, bro, we are Baptists. We don't speak in tongues. That was 100% my response. It was no lie. 
I may call him on the phone now and be like, did I say that to you, bro? I don't, I don't know why I was that witty, but it happens. <laughs> Nothing in the dark. I done lost him. Nothing below the chin. Never lie down. Nothing should last longer than five seconds. Because once it crosses the five second mark, almost for sure it's become a sin. And then the last one, nothing by yourself after midnight. Midnight hits, you by yourself on a, one of those late night dates or whatever, it's like, I'm out. That's my alarm. That's what my student pastor told me. Nothing good happens after midnight. And so here, here's what you can. You can stand up in the light with the face for less than five seconds before midnight. We'll go the positive if you want. Some of you are like, I can do a lot in five seconds, John. You can. Here's, here's how King Solomon said it. In the Song of Songs 2-7, he says this, promise me, hear it, promise me, O women of Jerusalem, by the gazelles and the wild deer, not to awaken love until the time is right. So even if we put a five-second timer on you and your physical activity and your thoughts, this is what Scripture says. The gazelles and the wild deer represent like youthful sexual vigor that's inside of us, and he's going, keep those stinking animals hibernating until it's time for them to run. And then when it's time for them to run, how awesome is it? This is what he's saying here. Let them out of their cage and watch them go wild. This is what Scripture says to us. But that cage is opened at marriage, on a wedding night, not before. Nothing in the dark, nothing below the chin, never lie down together. Nothing should last longer than five seconds and nothing after midnight. And by all means, here's the big giant dust statement, but please, like don't live together. Like first, again, if, if you're living together, you are in blatant sin, one. And I can't even say for sure that you're a Christian because you know that you're in blatant sin and you know that you're dishonoring the Father and you're still doing it. But I can say that you're living in unrepentant sin and there is no way that you have the blessing of God on your relationship, zero. And if you wanna to try to argue with me with that, you will lose, I promise. This is a part of your life which you are called to honor God. And if you do honor him in these spaces, it is going to be an unbelievably amazing blessing in your life. And hear me, you need his blessing on your relationships. I'm about to skip over this part. When we talk about these, these things, studies show statistically that someone who has lived with two to three people has less than a 5% chance of staying married. Living together, I've heard, is better preparation for divorce than it is for marriage. Love says for better or for worse, living together says only for the better. The purpose of dating is not to give you, again, like marriage, light, or in, an intimacy appetizer. It is to, get, to give you the space to get clarity on someone's character. So date for clarity, not for intimacy. And I know that this is, this is countercultural, but dating is not a time for like testing, how am I going to be in marriage? 
Um, this stage of dating should be characterized by like a selfless, sacrificial love, a love for your future spouse, a love for other people's future spouses, because physical intimacy outside of marriage creates these bonds, and we talked about them. They're just, they're hard to undo. They, they leave scars, and so at least have the decency to think about the person's future spouse that if it's not yours. If you're just dating them for a physical reason, they are hopefully one day going to be someone's wife or somebody's husband. At least respect them that much. Don't prioritize like your lust and the satisfaction of your lust over someone else's long-term good. The third one, we'll get through these. I will reject the marriage competition or the marriage completion myth. I will reject the marriage completion myth. It's this myth out there that says there's a right person out there for you, and if you don't find that person, you're never going to be happy. But if you do find that person, then you're going to always be happy. And if, if you're not happy, it's because, of course, you haven't found that right person. And so here's how this plays out in dating and then in marriage. In the dating stage, you're on the hunt, and you, you've got to find the right person, and you're always worried about it being the right person. And what if I don't find the right person? Am I too picky? What, like, what's the, what's the deal here? What, what if they don't like me? And then finally, you find what you think is the right person, and it makes your heart flutter. And you think, this is it. Our relationship is special. We, John, we never fight. We're, we're perfect for each other. Have you seen the pictures that we take? I know we took like 75 pictures to get the one, but still, do you see the pictures that we take? And then then you get married because this is the right person, and you figure out that they're not as perfect as you thought. Like, he's he's totally insensitive to my needs, and how can he smell so bad at night? That, That cute little burp he used to do at dinner is driving me nuts. She is so selfish. And where's the button to turn off the crazy? I know where that's... Sorry. All those little habits that you thought were so cute start to drive you crazy. In the dating stage, you thought that they were like quirky, and now you think like something is seriously wrong with you. And then their selfishness or their bad temper or their thoughtlessness, like it begins to get to you, and then you begin to look at them in a different way. Their looks don't intoxicate you anymore. The physical side of it begins to fade. And so you come to this crisis point in your marriage and you think, this is how we'll solve it. Let's have a baby. Yeah, bring a kid into this crazy. That's a great play. After you have a baby, you think, the problem is I just married the wrong person because the baby is added to the stress of this whole thing. And if I lose one more night's sleep... I'm going to lose it. And then you finally see, oh, I thought they were the right person, but they're not the right person. But the right person is actually at my work. They get me. I married the wrong person, but I'm going to go to you. So they decide that in order to correct the problem, they get a divorce from the wrong person and they go marry the right person who will satisfy their needs. And that doesn't work either because you know why? You always marry the wrong person. You, you always marry the wrong person. I married the wrong person for two reasons. First, we are not primarily just lonely people who need soulmates. You are sinners who need a savior. That's it. Gary Thomas in his book said this, marriage doesn't solve emptiness, it exposes it. If someone can't live without you, he or she will never be happy living with you. That's that's my little thing. You have to be satisfied being single before you can ever be satisfied being in a relationship. 
Lonely, insecure people need help from somebody. And so if I was lonely and insecure, I believe then if, if my, my solution was a mate, then God threw me a five foot four brunette life preserver to save me. And you know what I would do with her? I would drown her because she's not strong enough to carry me. I would. That's all that would happen. First, I'm just a sinner who needs a savior. Second, the reason I say that we always marry the wrong person is that they are also a sinner. And so that means that eventually they're going to let me down. Eventually that person is going to let you down. Tim Keller says it this way, the best that you can hope for in a marriage is less of a bad match for you since everyone ends up disappointing you anyway. We're basically just going after the one who disappoints us less. So, so what if you gave up this myth that there are, there's perfect people for you, there's this perfect person for you, and understood that that's not God's design, design for marriage anyway? What, what if we looked at marriage and we saw God's main purpose was to prepare us for himself, for eternity, and marriage is a way that he does that in a way that he supplies some of our needs while we're on this planet, but it's not the only way that those things happen. What would change if we approached like our singleness in a different way rather than being like this rapid, obsessive individual who was going after the right person and we decided that the right person was the key to our happy life? What if we put our eyes on Jesus and we focused on following him and we let him supply all of our needs? Then we would finally live out Matthew 6.33. You should have that memorized if you don't. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all of these things will be added unto you. You want a happy marriage? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. You want a beautiful family? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. I'm not saying that those things happen. This is not like a health and wealth thing. I'm not saying that this is the, the key to this. It's not how this functions. When you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, then you're going to be satisfied in the spaces that he places you. I also know that God's not evil. And so ladies, like if your desire from early on it's like, I want to be a beautiful bride, and then I want to be a wonderful mom, and I want to drive the van to soccer practice, and I want to bring snacks for everybody. Like, like, if that's you, God knows that in you, and he's either going to give it to you, or he's going to give you something better than that. He's not a bad father. It's not like, hey, when I ask for a loaf of bread, he gives me a rock. That's not how he functions. He knows the desires of your heart, and he's going to give you that, or as you pursue him, his kingdom, his righteousness, he gives you something better than that. And those are both like really, really sweet gifts. And so this leads me to the fourth one. I will seek God first and my significant other second. When you reject the marriage's completion myth and you can put your eyes on Jesus and you let him supply all of your needs. Here's the cheesy one of the day. I, I, this kind of irritates me. The best marriages are like two people running down the road as hard as they can after God Looking over, you see someone running about the same speed and direction that you are, and you're like, hey, where are you going? Want to go together? And some of you are like, that sounds really, really good. And I understand the practical idea of that. I understand why people use this in marriage books. I understand all of that. But, but here's the big picture behind that. Outside of that, sounded like really, really sweet, and I hope somebody runs up beside me and sweeps off my feet. Yeah. This is what we're saying. You can't wait on a spouse to determine who you are or where you're going. It's not going to be a completion thing for you. You can't wait on a spouse to determine who you are and where you're going. Some of you, 
many of us are like chameleons. We just take on the characteristics of people around us. You, you become them. Don't, don't do that. Be your own person. Be full in Christ. Be the one that God has made you to be and chase after him and then watch him satisfy all of those desires. Like here, Here's the statement. You're not ready to date until you're ready not to date. You're not ready to date until you're ready not to date. Be full in Christ. Don't look for another human being to be what you should be finding in Jesus. Proverbs 24, 27, put your outdoor work in order and get your fields ready. After that, build your house. It's a good marriage. It's a good premarital verse. Put your outdoor work in order and get your fields ready. After that, build your house. What does it mean? Outdoor work is your job. House, it's a metaphor for marriage. Guys, this is what he's saying. Before you seek a spouse, get a job. And hear me, you're much more attractive with a job. I'm just going to go ahead and say that. You are. You get your house in order before you build your house. Now, this isn't directly a formula for everything. Just great wisdom for you to make sure that your priorities are right. You're allowing Christ to be the one that's writing your story, not like a spouse who wants to complete your story. We talked about this. Like We're called to become the person that you are looking for. You're called to be the person who you are looking for is looking for. Say that again. You are called to become the person that the person you are looking for is looking for. It's a practical way of applying Matthew 6.33 to our life. And if, if God has marriage for you, then great. You're going to be better prepared. And if not, then you haven't wasted a decade trying to find somebody to complete you. Here's another one. I will date only in the Lord. If marriage is about friendship, it's a lifelong companion that's going to walk alongside you, then why unite yourself with someone who doesn't share the most important part of you? Paul, talking about this woman in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 39, this single lady in the church says, she's free to be married to whoever she wishes. Open parentheses or open quotations, only in the Lord. She is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. That's 2 Corinthians 6, 14. Do not be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? I, like, guys, I, I, want, I want to see you do what Scripture says, but I don't want you to see it as like a restrictive rule for your life. Like, I, I want you to see what Scripture says for you to be this loving guideline that you get to walk in. Because unequally yoked to an unbeliever means that you're never going to be able to share the, the deepest parts of you with them. You understand what a yoke is. It's this harness you put on two animals that you pull, and if you're pulling in opposite directions, it causes havoc. And, and if they don't share like your faith in Christ and your desire to honor him with your life, um, then you're going to be pulling in different directions. You're going to be pulling in different directions in your life, with your time, with your money, with your goals, all of those things. Think about raising children. If, if you raise children with an unbeliever, the single biggest impact in a child's life is their parents. And how selfish do you have to be to think that this unbeliever is so cute that I can't let them go? And if we have babies one day, the greatest influence over those kids is about 50-50. Am I willing to risk the eternity of my kids' souls for this? That's long-term thinking. That's, that's kind of big. And a little scary, but that's big. Like, like, are we that selfish that we would prioritize our desires for the moment 
for an eternal impact for our future kids. The other side of that is this. Like, if, if, you're, if, if you're not a Christian in here today, like, I don't always assume that everybody in here is a Christ follower. I'm, I'm not trying to be mean to you, talking about being unequally, unequally yoked. In fact, like, if you're dating a Christian, um, you're here for a reason today. Because they probably invited you. And they probably invited you because they want you to become a Christian. And their parents probably don't like you right now. In fact, they're praying that you do become a Christian. And their grandparents are, are praying the same thing. And here's the mean part of that. If you're an unbeliever dating a believer, none of them accept you as you are. They desire for you to be something else. They do. They know these verses. They, they're hoping that you get saved. And, and just like being honest with you, I've observed this in a lot of different places. As an unbeliever, if you're dating a believer, they don't want what's best. Well, they, they do want what's best for you, but they're not accepting you as you really are right now. And you should probably break up with them anyway. Do the Christian who's a coward a favor. If you are a believer dating an unbeliever, I go back to the living together thing. You are straight up living in sin. You should resolve to date only in the Lord and understand, you have to understand how the enemy works. Remember Balaam, the talking donkey? That story back in Numbers starts in like Numbers 23 and it goes to Numbers 31 and, and he's, with, he's with this guy named Balak and they're, they're having this conversation about blessing and cursing this area and he's going, hey, don't bless them, in fact, curse them. And he's like, I can't, the Lord is telling me to bless them. And he continues this battle back and forth. He's like, hey, I can't curse them. He's like, okay, then don't bless them, but don't curse them. But this is what I need you to do. Encourage the Moabite women to go into their camp and mate with them. And in one generation, the story of God will be gone. And this is exactly what happens in Numbers chapter 31. You can go in there and look at it yourself. The Moabite women come in and seduce them, and they have kids, and they grow up in homes, and they are not sure who God is, and it destroys the faith of the next generation. This is what the enemy wants to do with you. you. You claim to be a faithful Christ follower and you date an unbeliever and the enemy's winning because they hope that you reproduce in mass quantities and you raise babies that do not know God and that your faith dies with you. But together, the believing husband and a believing wife, then you raise kids that almost always become believers and passionately chase after the Lord. Dating is a road that leads to a destination. And every mile that you travel with somebody, it gets harder to get off of the highway. And you don't want to go, if you don't want to go to that destination, then you have to stay off of the road. Date only in the Lord. And then lastly, I will date only in the context of community. This is a big one. When I make the statement that we want to be a place where you date well and where you break up well, it only happens in this way. When we put 127 on shirts and we go, we're going to stand firm and we're going to strive together. And I'm going to make a statement to you that, that marriage is one of the things that we have to get right. And in order for marriage to be right, then dating has to be right. So we're going to battle. Okay. And I told our Bible study leaders that today, like I'm, we're entering into a space that's probably going to be difficult because some of you are going to have hard questions and hard situations and difficulty that you bring to the table. And if we could learn to do this, if we could learn to date in the context of community, then this gets easier. Like, like back in the Bible, marriages were arranged. And, and what did that mean? It, it, it meant that the community picked the spouse for you. 
They've gathered together at the coffee shop and they're going, so-and-so should marry so-and-so. Yeah, that's a good idea. Let's have a conversation with their parents, see if we can make that happen. He's got goats. Trade them right now. This is how this happened. It, it happened in the context of community. Now, let me be clear. I'm glad we don't do that anymore. Okay? I was in Kenya. No lie. This was in 2006. We're traveling around. We're, we're doing this ministry. My wife was at home. It's about 2007. My wife is at home. And in the midst of a conversation with the pastor, I showed them a picture of my wife. And he, no lie, asked me, how many goats? I was like, you've got to be joking. You go, oh, you're from Texas. How many cows? <laughs> like, you're funny. This is the same, the same orphanage that we were at where the, a bunch of kids ran out, and they were like, where are you from? I said, Texas. Oh, Chuck Norris. What? <laughs> Chuck Norris? Well, okay, that's fine. He's selling water down the street. Um, that's sweet. This is what community did. I'm glad we're not there anymore because there's a lot of problems with it. But in our culture, I think that we've probably gotten it wrong still. We've gone to the, like, the other opposite extreme to this point that in relationships, you think that in order for this to succeed, you isolate yourself, you tell yourself that your heart knows best, that your Christian friends who have had your best interest at heart all of your life are now after you because they tell you that he's not good for you or she is not good for you and they are 100% wrong. But the heart is deceitful above all things. Our heart doesn't usually know what's best. Other people actually, your community can see what's happening in your life, even when you can't. And they're not all hopped up on these physical <laughs> hormones provided by the attraction of the opposite sex that blurs your vision. And so I'm, I'm not saying that 100% of the time they have your best interest at heart. Sometimes they may not, but I'm going to trust within our community when somebody expresses a concern with you that you hear them and you explore it because it's worth it. Because if they're right, they've saved you a lot of heartache. And if they're wrong, then, then you have actually strengthened a relationship by battling. So you need godly and wise counsel in your life more at this stage than any other. If, if there is no other practical reason to be involved in our ministry as a single college student, then hear me, this would probably be it. Because if you want to find a Christian husband or wife, this is a pretty good place to start. But in doing so, you're inviting yourself into a community where people are going to be watching you and looking at you and seeing problems and addressing problems and have their permission to address those problems. Um, because lust and flirtation are difficult to, to battle. If someone has a failure to keep your, their word, sometimes you don't necessarily see that. If they're manipulative or controlling in their behavior, sometimes you're blurred to all of that. Matt says this, one sure way to walk in foolishness is a romantic relationship. One sure way to walk in foolishness in a romantic relationship is to date someone who troubles the godly counselors in your life. If you have people coming to you and going, hey, I would be careful there. And you don't explore that. You're walking in foolishness. You stay connected to the people in church. Ask older believers to speak into your relationships because it is worth it. And so you look at those. I will not prioritize character over chemistry. I will date for clarity and not intimacy. I will reject the marriage equals completion myth. I will seek God first and my significant other second. I will date only in the Lord and I will date only in the context of community. I, I believe if you walk in these things that your marriage is going to reflect the things that God wants you to reflect. 
And it's a battle, like it's difficult. I'm not saying that any of these things are easy, but I am saying that it's worth it. And then as the band comes up, let me close by saying this, because some of you are either in relationships now or you've just gotten out of relationships and you know as you listen to this, you're like, hey, these are things that I want, but, but John, when it comes to dating, I've blown it over and over again. Like I've continually messed up and you, you look back and you have this great hurt that you've caused yourself and this great hurt that you've probably caused other people or someone else. And you have this regret over some sort of, of sexual sin. And, and we've said it. Like, like I, I want to read it to you one more time. This is what Paul's promise to you is. Like you flee those things. You run from those things. There's nowhere in here that says you be perfect in those things. It says you recognize them and you run from them. Why? Because every other sin a person commits is outside of the body, but the person who is sexually immoral sins against his or her own body, and you know that because you're walking in the pain of that. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price, so glorify God with your body. And in that, hear this verse one more time. And some of you used to be like this, but you are washed. Girl in this room that's messed up, you are made clean. Guy in this room who has taken advantage of, and you're walking in the guilt of that, you are washed whiter than snow. You have been sanctified. You've been set apart and you have been justified by what Christ has done on the cross in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the spirit of our God and this is this is how this works I think I've explained this to you before but one of the sweet things about God being outside of time is he can see the cross and he can see you and when we talk about Jesus spilling his blood on your behalf when he looks down on you he sees the righteousness of Christ which means he sees the blood of Christ which purifies all And so whatever you've walked in and the guilt that you're walking in now, like the cross has made those things new. And you can choose to walk this way and honor God with your dating life that eventually leads to like a pure marriage that eventually leads to reflecting the gospel to a world that so desperately needs it. If you would run to the cross, seek that forgiveness, confess those things out loud, find a brother or sister who's gonna run beside you and let's do these things well. Let me pray for you. God, thank you. Um, Thank you for tough topics. Thank you for the opportunity to lean into them. Thank you that scripture um, gives us wisdom and promises and points out these things that we can walk in clearly. So now for, for young men and young women, would your spirit breathe boldness on them to walk powerfully in these spaces, to make a commitment that we're gonna say like, The physical side of relationships is is challenging and it's tempting and it's difficult. But would you give us like future kingdom eyes that your promises are so much better. And so if we could do some things that culture looks at now and says, you are strange, we will have things that culture doesn't have later. Would you give us the boldness to walk in that? For our good, we know, but, but bigger than that, for your glory, first and foremost. I thank you for, for loving us and for loving us so much that, that you sent Christ to die on a cross on our behalf. Thank you for loving us so much that you provided a way to see past all of our sin and those stains. Thank you for loving us so much that you invite us to be a 
part of your story of making the gospel known into all kinds of places. And may we make a commitment to that today, whether you satisfy our desire for, for marriage or you provide something even greater for the rest of our life. May we trust you with it because you're big enough. In Jesus' name, amen.